all these folks here, you know I'm not preaching on wives to men to their husbands till next week, right? I'm not sure if everybody got the word. The word that that's not coming until next week. Had a little change of plans this week. It's pretty cool seeing all these folks here this morning. I want to pray for a local church uh, and a pastor. Uh, we do that proactively. We don't pray for other churches and pastors because there's some sort of problem, unless we're invited to, but we pray proactively for our brothers and sisters and sister churches in our community. So we're going to pray for another church. And uh, I, I thought, too, I don't do this very often, but, I, but it might be a good occasion to do this. I'm Ben McGraw. I kind of introducing myself. I was asked to do this this morning. <laughs> funny. Um, I never do it, but I'm Ben McGraw. I'm one of the pastors at Cross Point, and um, the guy that's usually doing the talking, not always, but usually doing the talking on Sunday morning. And I, as a practice, not as a rule, uh, but as a practice, preach expositorily. What that means is I'm preaching through books of the Bible. I move verse by verse or chapter by paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through a book of the Bible. So that's what I'm doing this morning. So you might feel like, hey, man, I I showed up on a morning where he's preaching about marriage, and I was totally set up. You can know that you totally weren't because you just happened to be coming on a Sunday where it's the next thing we're dealing with. It's the next passage we're dealing with. So you can think or you can trust, I think, and hope that that was God's providence and God's timing that you landed here on this morning on this uh, particular message, that it was um, a divine appointment. Let's call it that. A divine appointment. Okay, let's pray for another church. We're going to pray for Ed Butler and FBC Quinlan, and we're going to pray about how we spend these next few minutes. Lord, we are thankful that we have the chance to lift up another church in our community. Um, FBC Quinlan, Lord, we want to lift up Ed uh, Butler and his family. First of all, I want to pray for his marriage, Lord. I pray that it is rich and uh, blessed. I pray that his that he and his wife are enjoying the gospel together, that they're seeing the gospel playing out at home as Ed is beginning over, not beginning, but continuing to, to hopefully over time look more like Christ. Um, I pray the same for his uh, wife, Lord, that over time that she is looking like the church that is enjoying um, her groom in the person and work of Christ as she loves and follows her husband, Lord. I I pray that that's playing out at home so that it's fueling his pulpit ministry and fueling his shepherding uh, and his counseling and all that goes on that he has um, a part to play in, in FBC Quinlan, Lord. I pray that that will then have a, a, an overflowing effect on the life of the church where the life of the church together gets to see what the gospel looks like as they see Ed and his family do life together. Um, that's a big prayer, Lord, and one that I pray for, for this marriage and this church, uh, and I pray for the other pastors in our community and their marriages, Lord, that they will be rich and overflowing and putting the gospel on display. We pray for FBC Quinlan, Lord, that they will have these great problems of space issues and parking issues, and uh, that they'll have to try and find creative ways to to fit more people in a, a worship center and just wonderful problems, Lord. We pray that that will be a result of the exposition of the word week by week. Guard them from schemes. Guard them from the temptation to tickle ears. Uh, Lord, set them free with uh, just the, the notion that just exposing your word and aiming to walk in it together will be enough. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to lift them up this morning. Lord, I pray what I've prayed for them, I pray for us this morning, that we can set your truth free 
and that it will do a wonderful work this morning as the Holy Spirit works on our hearts and our minds and uh, our worship and equips us to walk with you better. Um, uh, turning this time over to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I failed to look up the page number and I forget, but it's the page, the page number of the pew Bible. It's not pew, the seat Bible in front of you. Uh, it's usually like 897 or something like that, if I'm recalling it correct. It's around in there, so um, that'll get you close, if not on it. Ephesians chapter 5. So I Googled a question this week. The question I Googled was, why is marriage important? Uh, first in the search results, I just really looked at mainly the top 10 results. The first in the search results was a website called All Pro Dads. All Pro Dads was a Christian, is a Christian website that uh, looked like it had some good counsel uh, regard, regarding marriage as to why it's important. Biblical sort of counsel. Um, the second on the list was a website called Family Life, also a Christian website that had some good information about why marriage matters in regards to faith and how it's connected to faith, uh, also a Christian source. The third in the list of results uh, was an article titled, Why Get Married? The Value of Commitment from Psychology Today. This was the first non-Christian, first secular response um, from uh, a source that is pointing toward the notion that marriage is good for your mental health. Okay, that was the gist of the article. Uh, the next was from a site called Quora. Uh, it's interesting, Quora is not a, a word, it's a made-up word. It comes from Quorum that gives the notion that what's going to be gleaned from this site comes from a, a consensus of, um, of idea. So that's, that's kind of scary to think about that it's consensus now defines things. But at least on this site, uh, this guy answered, he wrote a paper on, on Quora. He's a Shakespearean director. <laughs> and he said it's important. He said for him, he's, he's an atheist, but he said that marriage is important for him because it's nostalgic and because he likes promises. He thinks making promises are cool. And um, in fact, he said he seldom breaks promises. I thought, wow, he's kind of proud too. But I, I don't know. I don't know the guy. I wondered though if he, he said that with a flourish that I breaketh promises or breaketh promises I do not, since he's a Shakespeare guy. Well, the fifth source was from a site called WebMD. WebMD is, is one of the places you'll be led to if you're feeling kind of bad and you Google your symptoms and you see WebMD and a thousand other places that really are going to tell you that as you research it that you're really about to die, like your terminal. You know, this WebMD was one of the sources that actually is a legitimate source and one that uh, is worth reading. Uh, WebMD had an article uh, in response to this question, why is marriage important, uh, that really sort of revealed the, the, or um, made the point that marriage is good for your health in regards to your blood pressure, uh, cardiac health, um, your um, immune system even will be stronger if you're married, um, uh, your mental health, uh, that all of these things are are good things, and marriage can help with all of those things. So that was an interesting source. Um, it wasn't until the 10th response that I found a response. It may have been the way I asked the question, but it wasn't until the 10th result that I found a result that, that, that was against marriage. Okay, and this one, the title was from Thought, or the, the website's Thought Catalog, and the title of it was Six Reasons Why Getting Married Isn't Really That Important Anymore. 
I couldn't believe it was populated in one of the top 10 results on Google. It was so poorly handled. Uh, it had six reasons. The sixth reason, uh, like the, whoever wrote it really, um, I think, had done just enough reading to be dangerous, uh, referred to the sixth reason as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, referencing Maslow's hierarchy of needs with self-actualization as the goal. Marriage can sometimes connote dependence on another human, which can prevent someone from reaching a self-actualized state. That's just, just malarkey. I mean, I don't even know where to go with that. It's just, just crazy. Well, anyway, what was most striking for me, I didn't expect to glean a bunch of deep and important insight from a, uh, a Google search, but um, what was really the most telling for me was the most recent response of the first 10 responses or the results was from 2013. Okay, most of the articles were like 2008, 2005, or even older. I want you to just think about this for a minute. A Google search that I did just a couple days ago told me really that 2017 doesn't really even think about it as a current topic. 2017 says it doesn't really matter. In fact, the most recent one was 2013, so in some ways we could say or think that the internet says meh about the last, at least the last four years of the internet says meh about the topic of marriage. Meh. Who cares? Tired, boring, irrelevant. So I asked the question, you know, I asked the question of y'all. I hope you're wondering this at this point. Is marriage irrelevant? Are we going to believe what the internet, or at least the last four years of the internet say about marriage and believe that it's irrelevant and unimportant. I'd planned on launching into Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 on wives submitting to their husbands this morning, but I thought, you know, wait a second. We're in an age and a time in our culture and our country where everything is up for grabs to include sexuality and even gender. I mean, something that we would not even really think is up for grabs. Gender is up for grabs. So, of course, if we're wise, we should realize that marriage is up for grabs. It makes sense for us to spend a Sunday going or asking the question, why is marriage important? And going to the Bible for answers. Not going to the Internet, but going to the Bible for some answers. So that's where we're going to go in these next few minutes. What I hope to do in these next few minutes is share three really good biblical reasons. I should qualify that. Three really good, or two really good biblical reasons and one spectacular, amazing reason that marriage is important for the Christian, okay? So I'm gonna jump into our passage, Ephesians chapter five. I'm gonna read verse 22 all the way through verse 33, but home base for us really is going to be verse 31 this morning. So pay special attention to that as I read. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I felt like verse 31 would be a great place for us to start these next few weeks as we take a closer look at the relationship between husbands and wives. A great place to ask and answer the question, why is marriage important? It's, it's a passage that's taken from Genesis chapter 2. So I think we should do what Paul did and take his lead and go back to the foundation of marriage. Go back to the very beginnings. So what I would like to do in these next few minutes is go back to the book of Genesis. And in fact, Genesis chapter 1. So you can turn back there. Genesis chapter 1. The way I'm kind of visualizing what we're doing this morning is the difference between parachuting into something and hiking in. If you parachute into a context... uh, Uh, some sort of geographic location, you have a hard, uh, it's very difficult to get a lay of the land because you've just been dropped into it. What's better for getting a lay of the land, it might take a little longer, is to actually hike in. So we're going to hike in a little bit through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, looking at the beginnings of marriage and try and uh, ask and answer the question, why is marriage important? Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26 This is the account of the sixth day of creation. We'll see what we can glean. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, in this passage, I think we can glean maybe the first important Uh, the first answer to the question of why marriage is important. Let's look at just a couple things that come out of it. First of all, man and woman are created in God's image. Okay, We would see and expect that we have a God, that we follow a God that is exercising dominion, that is leading and stewarding. Well, this is something that is passed on to Adam and Eve through something called the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. It's a real term for what is passed to the man and woman, and it, here's, where, here's where, how it reads. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. The last part of it I sort of summarized. 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. It's the charge that he gave them after he created them. And in some way, it's a blessing is, what, is how the passage reads there. Well, Noah was given a similar, Noah and his sons were given a similar uh, charge after the flood. And you might be paying attention to even fast-forwarding you know, thousands of years after that to a charge that was given to, to some apostles. It's very much the same. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of every nation. Okay, this cultural mandate is a prefigure of something that we are all walking in as we walk in the Great Commission. Now, the cultural mandate is really made up of two parts. Okay, the first part is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? I'm, I'm just going to go and tell you right now, that's the easy part. Okay? The, the second part is the, the, the subduing part and the exercising dominion part. In some ways, we might say the stewarding Okay, this is the filling and populating, and this is the stewarding. I want you to imagine for a minute if the cultural mandate were only to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, marriage wouldn't be necessary. Okay, I'm just going to tell you right now, if that's all that was in the cultural mandate was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, marriage wouldn't be necessary. After all, I don't think rabbits get married Think about that for a minute. You have to think about that for a minute because I want you to get that. Rabbits don't get married. And from what I, what I know about rabbits, they're pretty good at being fruitful and multiplying and populating. Okay, I'll tell you something that's really good at, at, at being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth is cats. We had a little kitten that showed up here at the church building a couple years ago and it was just crying at the front door just day and night. And finally I was like, man, actually after I spent a couple hundred dollars at the auto repair shop, because some mice crawled in my engine compartment on my vehicle and chewed up the wires. I thought about that little kitten out there by the, the, the front door of the church building. I said, you make a nice pet. So I brought him home. I brought her home, I should say, with the plan to have her spayed the first opportunity that I could. Well, I was too late, and we end up with kittens. Because critters are really good at being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Okay? But the cultural mandate has more to it than just being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. I want you to consider for a moment the rest of the mandate to subdue and exercise dominion. Now we're talking about something that kittens can't do. Now we're talking about something that rabbits can't do. Now we're talking about an organized plan. We're talking about teamwork now. We're talking about some direction here when we're talking about subduing and exercising dominion. And this will require teamwork. And I would offer to you that the best form of that teamwork is marriage. See, God turned to man and woman, newly made man and woman, with a charge to multiply and steward his creation. And marriage is a beautiful answer to that charge. See, a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage can say, okay, together, let's multiply and let's steward this thing. Let's subdue this thing called life together. Let's do some things together that would be really hard to do if we didn't have some sort of plan and some sort of direction. Let's go build a business together. Let's do that. How about let's subdue this thing called life by getting married and building a business together. Let's build a home together. I'm thinking about Eric and Hannah Richardson. Just built a beautiful home 
out on Old Mill. I ride my bike by it all the time. Let's get married and go build a house. Let's subdue this thing called life by building some structure and then moving in. And let's paint it a color that we want it to look. Let's fill it with dishes that we go buy at Dillard's that match. That's subduing and exercising dominion. Then let's get some ingredients that are all just sort of a strange collection of ingredients. And let's mix them together with a plan and then cook something really good. And then let's subdue that bad boy. Let's eat a good meal together in the covenant of marriage. Let's, let's exercise dominion over that yard and till up a big section of that yard and plant a garden and exercise some dominion out there in that yard, right? Plant, that's right. Let's get a pet. Let's get a, a dog and let's name it, exercising some dominion, and then let's teach that bad boy to sit. Let's do that within the covenant of marriage. Think about all those things that take place when people get married. Fittingly, those things take place because those are appropriate things to do together in the covenant of marriage. Let's fill a photo album with memories. Let's subdue this thing called life together. Let's exercise dominion in this thing. Now, I want you to imagine what life would be like if there was no sense of permanence. And no sense of commitment and no sense of stability where man and woman would just procreate like animals. And then man would move on to the next woman and just procreate. You reckon that bunch would be very good at subduing that thing called life? Well, if you look at the stats, you would realize that no, they're not very good at that. Neighborhoods and communities where marriage is not important, what you'll find is poverty and crime. You won't find people that are good at subduing life and exercising dominion over anything. Man, it's interesting. Just a two-second search, you can find these crazy stats. This took me about 30 seconds. So the first thing that pop, popped up, a poverty rate for single parents with children in 2009 was 37.1%. For married couples uh, with children, it was 6.8%. Now, here's how that stat works out. Um, being raised in a married family, the child's, a, a child's probability of, being, uh, of living in poverty was reduced by 82% in a married home over an unmarried, broken home. Man, it looks to me like marriage is a great way to tackle that cultural mandate. And especially that second part, subduing and exercising dominion. The first reason marriage is important it's a wise way to fulfill, it may be frankly the only way to properly fulfill the cultural mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue and exercise dominion on this thing called life. Okay, let's look at our second reason, chapter 2 of Genesis. This is going to lead us to our passage where we started this morning over in Ephesians eventually. We're going to actually read it at the tail end of this passage. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2 looking at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I have no reason to read this any other way than literally. 
I, some, of you, some folks in here may have different views on how this story, the creation account, unfolds. I treat it every time I preach and every time I read it, every time I talk about it in a Bible study as a very literal event. I believe there's a very literal, real man named Adam that was placed in a very literal, real garden named Eden. Okay, so let's keep our eye on Adam and see what happens. Let's look down at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I believe there's a very real man named Adam placed in a very real garden named Eden with instructions to work it and to keep it. You could say to tend to it, to exercise stewardship over it, to subdue that joker. Okay? Let's see what happens next in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's an important word. A helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, it's interesting. I think about how God pronounced each day good. I mean, he makes something and he pronounces it good at the end of each day. And at the end of the sixth day, he says it's very good. But something that he says that's not good is for this man, this man Adam, this newly made creature, to be alone. I can't imagine that Adam didn't somehow feel like something was missing. He's got a parade of critters. You know, I've always envisioned what that must have been like, where he's naming all the critters. You know, up walks the platypus, you know, and you just, you know, what am I going to name this thing? You know, it, it hadn't been named platypus yet. Said, Let's call it a platypus. What a, what a creative guy, Adam. That's a good job. A, a warthog. I mean, what a perfect name for a critter. Because you look at him, it's like a, a it's like a, is that an onomatopoeia that I'm thinking of? A word that actually sounds like it is? He looks like what his name is. A warthog. And that, that venture of naming all the critters, they're marching by. You know, the canine, canine comes by. Dog. Mm, that's good. The cat was uncooperative. He wouldn't come by. He didn't get named right there. He got named later, I'm convinced, because cats wouldn't cooperate in a parade. No way. So I'm thinking about that event of naming all these critters. And after this parade of these critters coming by and he's naming them, I wonder if he just, he must have thought, man, there's some pretty amazing things here, um, but there's nothing like me. There's nothing that's fit for me. There's some stuff that looks like me. There's a gorilla, you know, he's hairy, you know, looks kind of like me. There's a chimpanzee, he's kind of got a face like me, but but there's nothing really like me. There's nothing that corresponds to me. That's what that word means, fit. I mean, there's nothing that corresponds to me. He must have felt this pregnant vacuum. Something is missing here. Something's not quite right. There's nothing like me, and I'm quite alone. So in verse 21, let's see what happens. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So God's answer to this problem of loneliness for Adam was to make a woman. It's interesting, too, that the male and female of all the critters are made from the dirt, the earth. But the woman is unique. She's made from Adam's side, from the rib. Uh, Some people devotionally treat that as the place that's closest to the heart. There's a beauty when you think about that. This ish is what the Hebrew says. Ish is taken. He's put to sleep. And from ish, God makes ish shah, a woman that corresponds to him, a woman that is a fit for him. And then he conducts the first wedding ceremony. You see how the passage reads where he brings her to him. It's like this beautiful Eden Isle. Can you imagine the beauty of that moment where the father walks the bride down the aisle to an eager and waiting groom? Man, he must have been delighted. In fact, he was delighted because the first human words that are recorded in the Bible, I would argue the first human words that are recorded history was love poetry. Isn't that sweet? Let's just enjoy that. Let's let let that be sweet for a moment. Let's enjoy that. That's beautiful for a moment. That the first recorded human words were love poetry. And they were quite exclamatory. Apparently Adam was quite delighted and quite happy with what God did. God made a critter that corresponded to him that was suitable for him. And the problem of loneliness, for him at least was solved. I want you to think about this for a minute. The problem of loneliness is as old as creation. If you struggle with loneliness, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not just happening to you. It didn't just happen to you. It happened, and it's as old as creation. I felt it often as a young man. I was stationed out in Southern California. I lived in a little studio apartment about three minutes' walk from the beach uh, in San Clemente. Beautiful place to live, beautiful place to go down to the beach. But man, I spent weekend after weekend when we weren't training, lonely. I bet some of y'all can remember time in your life where you felt really, really lonely. The feeling of being completely alone, even maybe while you're surrounded by a bunch of other people. Isn't that interesting? For me, I experienced profound loneliness out there because I didn't have someone who corresponded to me. I didn't have someone who was a fit for me. And God gave me, in 1995, my Ish And it was very good. And it is very good. And man, it's been a sweet answer to loneliness for this guy. And I think that's a beautiful picture Of a second great reason, marriage is important. Marriage is an answer to the problem of loneliness. A really good one. All right, let's look at the third. The third reason marriage is important. We're going to continue on in our passage here, but I want you to be ready to go back to Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked... And we're not ashamed. You can go ahead and turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I just want to point something out to you. Um, In Ephesians chapter 5, it's quoted nearly verbatim. Something that's carried over is the word therefore. But the word therefore was in in the Genesis passage I just read. 
And when a word therefore is there, you need to ask, what's that word therefore, therefore? It's pointing to something. In that, that case, it's pointing back to all that had transpired in regards to marriage. I want you to get this sense. I want you to capture this reality. He's spoken, all that he's spoken of in regarding the creation of man and woman and the whole loneliness remedy and even the cultural mandate, it all comes together in this one reality of the union of the man and woman as one flesh. It all comes together in that union of man and woman as one flesh. Let's look at what Paul says about this passage here in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll read the quote just so it's really ingrained in us, and then we're going to read the passage after it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery of the union between man and woman is profound, and it refers to Christ and the church. The word mystery is used in various places throughout our New Testaments, but what it means is, is, is something that has previously been hidden, maybe for ages, that is now made clear and plain. And here's the reality. Paul is taking them to this place where they can see it clear and plain now. He's explaining the meaning, not only of countless marriages, beginning with Adam and Eve, up to the married folk there in Ephesus that would have been hearing this letter read for the first time, but also all the way forward to the marriages that are connected in this room. He's explaining the meaning of marriage in this passage. This is the whopper of the reason that I couldn't wait to share with you this morning. I'll be really honest with you. The first two uh, good reasons for getting married, they are good reasons, but I was really just trying to butter you up for this. I was really trying to kind of grease the skids to where you were ready to receive something that's really, really deep and rich and awesome. And this is it right here. This is the reason that marriage matters for the Christian. Paul tells us the whole thing all along has been about the union of Christ and his bride, the church. The union of man and woman in marriage as one flesh refers to the union of Christ and the church. So man, just take that in. When God said, you know what, it's not good for man to be alone. He wasn't just feeling bad for Adam. He looks a little down after naming all those critters. I think I'll just give him a remedy and whip up a woman. That's not how it went down. He took a rib and formed a woman corresponding to Adam, thinking of, considering, mindful of his son's future union with the church by faith. This was an ages-old plan all along. He had in mind the mystery that he would in time and through his son's work unite the bride of Christ, the church, to that of his son. Man, I want that to hit you for a minute. When I use the phrase union with Christ and the union of Christ with the church, what I want to use synonymously here with this so you are really connected to what I'm saying here, I'm going to insert some different words. Marriage, the marriage union refers to the relationship between Christ and the church. The marriage union refers to the gospel. 
the marriage union refers to the good news of salvation. Okay, is that helping you by importing those words where you're seeing those used synonymously? Where you're realizing that what, sh- what evangelists share week after week, what pulpits preach week after week about the good news, marriage refers to that. Yes, my marriage? Yeah. My old, frail, feeble marriage? Yeah, that one. That very one. And everyone before mine and everyone since mine will point to that relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage refers to faith. Man, I promised you some good news today. I I realize that there are so many different stories that come into a corporate worship service. There are so many stories even within our own regular membership of people that are in different situations, maybe broken homes, maybe divorced, maybe uh, remarried, maybe living together, different things that are going on, okay? I I understand that, that they're all a collection, a melting pot of experiences here in this morning. So I promised you some good news, whatever you brought in here. And I want to show you that there is good news that can be gleaned from this third reason that marriage is important. The first is that faith, our gospel, or the good news of salvation is a great tutor on marriage. Okay, that's the first. Faith and gospel and the good news of salvation is a wonderful tutor on marriage. Here's a few ways, just briefly. First, for the married, knowing that your marriage refers to Christ in the church, it'll add a note of seriousness and sobriety to this thing that you're doing in your marriage. A a needed note of seriousness and sobriety. A note of intentionality, that this is something I ought to be working on. If that's what it's representing, then this should be uber important to me. It shouldn't be something that I'm just existing in that I'm just living in. The notion of a husband actually saying, man, I should be reading a book about what it means to be a husband. Maybe there's some good books out there for a Christian guy to look at. What does it mean to love my wife as Christ loved the church? There's some great resources. And you're thinking like you ought to be thinking. If a wife is sitting here thinking maybe for the first time this morning, maybe I ought to be thinking about what it means to be a wife and follow my husband and actually respect him (laughs) and submit to him. There's some great resources out there for you. Man, this is, this is informative. It's a great tutor. And I'll tell you this, too. When you realize that your marriage is actually referring to Christ in the church, man, it's going to add great fuel. And I would offer maybe the only fuel that a wife will need to submit to a husband that's not always respectable. I don't know what other fuel you got. You're just going to grit your teeth and say, well, i got to submit to this loser. How about if you're actually fueled by worship and thinking, no, I'm going to submit to this guy, consistent or not, because it represents Christ in the church. That adds some meaning to that notion. That gives some fuel in that tank. And maybe for a husband that's thinking, man, i got to love my wife as Christ loved the church, but she's just so unlovable at times. This is great fuel. I'm talking good. This is like high octane. This is like, um, what's the stuff people put in their cars? Nitrous oxide. Yeah, Jeff I's going to do that to his Land Cruiser. It's like nitrous oxide for your marriage where you go, oh, that's why I can love my wife as Christ loved the church, even when she's unlovable, because Christ loved the church. And my marriage refers 
to that, man, it becomes fuel for a husband to love his wife sacrificially regardless of whether or not she's being lovable or not. You realize that's how Christ loves us, right? Just, let me just remind you, that's how Christ loves us, right? Not depending on how we're doing. So what a great tutor for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How about for the divorced and single? I promise good news for everybody. That's some good news for the married. How about for the divorced and single? First of all, if marriage is your ultimate, okay, if you unknowingly thought that worship and Christ and union of of the church with Christ, the good news of salvation was your ultimate, but then you're divorced and you come to find out your life is ending, it's because marriage was your ultimate instead of the penultimate. Okay, marriage should be the penultimate. It should be the most, the next to most important thing, with the most important thing being the relationship between Christ and the church. So first of all, if your marriage comes unglued and your worship comes unglued, it means your marriage was ultimate and maybe faith was penultimate. Okay, faith is supposed to be the ultimate. So here, here's an encouragement for you. If you're divorced and you're single and you're like, man, what am I supposed to do with this now? I kind of wish I hadn't come today. Let me encourage you with this thought. Not having the penultimate, okay, if you've lost your marriage, if it's come unglued and you sit here feeling like, man, I, I've failed this thing that's so important. It's the picture of Christ in the church and I'm a failure. Here's the good news to you. You can lean unobstructed into the ultimate. Now with the penultimate out of the way, you can lean unobstructed into the ultimate relationship of Christ in the church. Paul would say that's preferable. Paul personally preferred that. I prefer being single because a wife is kind of a drag to my ministry. That's a, and that's a you know, BIV, Ben International Version of whatever, whatever he said. <laughs> She kind of gets in the way of my real ministry of wanting to serve Christ. Man, he also called singleness a gift. Think about that for a minute. So if you're sitting here divorced and single, saying, man, what I'm supposed to do is I've fumbled this thing altogether. What you have the opportunity to lean unobstructed into the ultimate union of Christ and the church. The earthly reference may not have gone well, but you have the ultimate reference you have Christ. Your earthly husband may not have been faithful, but guess what? Your heavenly husband will never forsake you or fail you, period, ever. You can lean strong into him. If you have kids and you're feeling like, man, what am I supposed to tell my kids? What am I supposed to do with this? I would argue that you as a divorced parent, you may have the loudest voice on this matter, in the life of your children, of anyone in our church family. Because our parents are looking at you, or your children, excuse me, are looking at you going, what are you going to do with this, mom? What are you going to do with this, dad? You've lost the penultimate. What are you going to do with the ultimate? You may have the loudest voice of anyone in here as you lean into the ultimate relationship of Christ in the church, out loud, showing your children that your groom is not, never going to fail you as you lean in together with the bride, not as an individual, a little lone ranger out there, single mom or single dad, but leaning in with the people of God. Man, you're showing your children what the gospel means. 
It's redemptive. I know it's not easy, but grace is like manna. He'll give you enough for a day, then you go out and pick up some more the next day. So hang in there, single moms and single dads. For those that are living together, while your situation might be a form of an answer to the first two problems, you could arguably have in a common law or in um, a cohabitating relationship a, a somewhat of a solution to loneliness. Okay? I, I, you can. I, I'm not going to argue about that. And you could also procreate and maybe do a little subduing and dominion. You can make some kids and stuff. Maybe do some subduing and committee. I will say this. You can't fulfill the third. You cannot possibly in any way, if you're living together, fulfill the third reason that marriage is important because it represents Christ in the church. You cannot possibly do that. Living together can't possibly put the relationship between Christ and the church on display because Christ and the church are in covenant with one another. They've made each other some big and strong promises. To having to hold. Man, just think about that for a minute. Living together, apart from the covenant of marriage, would be like placing faith in a Savior who made you no promises. Can you imagine for a moment a Savior that said, I may leave you and forsake you. I may not. Can you imagine a Savior who said, I go to prepare a place for you and I may or may not come back and get you so that you may or may not be with me? Man, what kind of Savior is that? I want to encourage you and challenge you. If you have the view that, man, this is, I really don't want to rock the boat and this thing's going pretty well and marriage is just really going to disrupt this thing. Maybe you're feeling self-actualized. I don't want to make that seem foolish or silly. I know I did earlier, but maybe that's really important to you. Let me encourage you in this third reason to say, man, that's why this matters. That's why this isn't okay. If I am trusting Christ as my Savior and Lord, if I'm walking in this gospel of salvation, if I'm walking in this good news of salvation, if I'm walking in the union of Christ and the church, but I'm not showing the world what that looks like in this penultimate thing, Man, I would encourage you. It's time. It's time. It's time to call it a marriage by making it a marriage. Making some covenants and making some promises. It's fitting. Now, faith and gospel are a great tutor on marriage, but here's the last thing I'll leave with you. Marriage is a great tutor on faith. The reason that we can see that this is beautiful, this relationship between Christ and the church is referring to marriage Marriage is a great tutor on faith. It's a frail and feeble venture of two becoming one, isn't it? (laughs) Those of us that are married in here, those of us who have been married in here, you can go, yeah, I'll say. Man, that plane does not fly on autopilot. And that ride, that flight gets bumpy at times. Goodness gracious. I think if anybody, if everybody is honest in here, we can... Admit that it's frail and feeble venture. The wedding can go off without a hitch with perfect flowers and dresses and tuxes and music and ceremony and cake. You could have an Emily Higgins cake that's just spectacular. You can have a toast from the best man that's just one of those that 
Maybe he's got a dance routine he's set up too that makes YouTube. I mean, this head wedding can go off like just this, this award-winning uh, wedding, but I promise you the hitches are coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. The wedding can go off without a hitch, but the marriage won't. And let me tell you something. Marriage is a wonderful tutor of salvation in that you're saved the moment you trust Christ as your Savior and Lord, like the two are made one the moment they covenant together before the Lord, saying, I do. But it takes years to grow into this union. And it takes work. It takes intentionality. It takes this pursuit. It takes this desire. It takes years to learn Christ and what it means to be his. And there are seasons to that pursuit. There are seasons to that journey. And there are hitches in faith as well. And hiccups and bumps and bruises. But I encourage you in this. If you press on over time, you'll find that you are truly part of one another. Christy and I have been married 22 years, and there are times where I look at Christy, we're talking about something, and I feel like I'm looking at the other half of myself. And I'm not being, like, um, sappy. It's not a movie line. Like, it's this real thing, a prettier half, but I feel like I'm looking at the other half of me. That's taken time. We said I do 22 years and some change ago, but man, it's taken time to think and move that way to where we see life the same, where we are thinking one another's thoughts. And what's true of marriage is a great tutor of what's true in faith. It takes time to begin to think Christ's thoughts. It takes intentionality. It takes work. It takes walking together. It takes spending time together before you see the world the way Christ sees the world. But I promise you, if you stick with it, you just show up. Just keep showing up. And man, he'll do it. He'll do it. The third reason marriage is important is because it refers to Christ and the church. That's the whopper. Let's pray. God, I am thankful for that uh, Truth is something to hold on to. God, I uh, confess and profess in 22 years of marriage, in um, various challenges, various hiccups, various struggles, Lord, that that has been the thing that has sustained our marriage and grown our marriage is that reality. Lord, I'm so thankful for what you've done that to, or what you've done in my marriage with that third and unbelievable truth. And Lord, I pray that the marriages that are in this room or the potential marriages that are in this room, that they'll be fueled by the reality that marriage refers to Christ in the church. This wonderful mystery that's now made plain and clear. God, I pray that that will be good fuel for all of us. I'm thankful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to distribute our elements, and then I'll uh, share a passage with you from the book of Revelation. If you'd like to turn there, it's in Revelation chapter 19, but you don't have to. You can just listen. Uh, let me just invite you into this, or let me just encourage you with this thought regarding the Lord's Supper. The, Lord, the Lord's Supper is, is for believers. It, when I say believers, I mean folks that are in union with Christ by faith. The, the words that I've used synonymously this morning. 
If you're not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you're not in union with Christ by faith, if you're not walking in the good news of salvation, then don't take this supper. You can grab some lunch afterward. You might even be invited to lunch by somebody here. But if you're, if you're not a Christian, this, this is not for you. This is for the people of God. This is for the bride. It's a meal for the bride. If you're part of the bride, as in trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, I invite you to take and eat and drink. Let's distribute the elements. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard what sound or what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a term that I didn't use this morning that I, I use from time to time, the, the word prefigure. In some ways, you could connect that to the sermon where marriage leading up into the time of Christ prefigured what would be fulfilled and figured um, in the person and work of Christ. And then since Christ, I made up a word, I'll put a little circle C behind it, perifigured since then in us, in our marriage. Okay, so that's the, the second word's made up. Don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Perifigured. But prefigured is a word that is a legitimate word. And that's what marriage did up until the time of Christ. It prefigured the relationship between Christ and the church. Well, what we do each week when we take the Lord's Supper, it's a prefigure of what I just read here. What will eventually, at the end of the age, when we are together with our groom, the church has been made ready, and Christ comes back to get us, there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb. This is a meal that prefigures that. So it should be anticipating in some ways, but almost celebratory as we realize he's coming back for us. We have a Savior that made good promises. And he's going to make good on those promises so we can enjoy our groom together as we take this supper. Let's take and eat in faith. Let's take and drink in faith. I want to share one thought with you that I'm going to send out in an email. Um, but, you know, I've kind of thought my emails uh, kind of go, might go to a place where odd socks go. Um, I've thought that, that at times I might send some things that, that people, people may not read because I know you get lots of stuff in, your, in the inbox. I started the morning by saying that we haven't arrived, we haven't figured everything out. So this is a been being vulnerable with you for a minute, which hopefully I always am, but especially so. Um, I want to I encourage you wherever your marriage may be. Some of you might be sitting here this morning feeling like, man, that's a, you know, sort of pie in the sky sort of thoughts this morning. Um, this guy must have just, you know, had the perfect marriage for 22 years, and he must be—he must be one of those guys that's just really blessed and unique, and never having anything other than the wind to his back in his marriage. Um, man, I, I just want to encourage you. I, I, I know it was presented as an answer and remedy for loneliness, but if it's if it's treated only as that, you're going to have a miserable marriage because you're going to look to her to be something that God should be. 
or you're going to look to him to be something that God should be for you. You're going to expect and make an idol in some ways of your own marriage instead of making God the Lord over it and him being your God. And it's going to make for a pretty miserable existence. And I would say that I did that at times over the course of our marriage. And ironically, even though that is a remedy for loneliness, I experienced some of the greatest loneliness I've ever felt within my marriage to my Isha. Okay? Some of the greatest loneliness I've ever felt was, I think, because of the irony, too. I'm thinking I'm supposed to be in this thing that's the answer for loneliness, and here I'm miserable and lonely. I think I was looking to her for something that I should have been looking to the Lord for. And we can all do that at times. And you might be doing that right now, saying, man, you just put to words what I'm struggling with right now. Our wives don't make very good gods, men. And ladies, your husband won't make a very good god. You're going to be miserable, and she's going to be miserable, or she's going to be miserable, and you're going to be miserable. I promise you that. And let me encourage you in this. I think there's some good resources in the church. The church should be the place that has this figured out. You know, not, not figured out like we've arrived, but has help figured out. And I really believe there's some amazing resources in this body. We have some of the most gifted counselors I've ever sat under. <laughs> and I should say I sat under as a counselee. Christy and I have gone to marital counseling okay, more than once, a, a, hand, a number of times, in fact. If you go to marital counseling, it doesn't mean you must, be a, you must be messed up. It probably means that you're a sinner married to a sinner. And you actually want to work on your marriage. It doesn't have to mean you're messed up. It could actually mean that you need someone to peer in and help you see some things that you can't see because you're in the fray. Okay, If you have somebody peer in that's gifted and trained and um, uh, has some, some insight into God's design, they can help you sort that stuff out. We needed that in our marriage, and God's used it in ways that I'm telling you are remarkable. Remarkable. There are some remarkably gifted folks in our body. I think our life group shepherds are a resource. I think our pastors are a resource. Um, I want to just mention these names, Morris Bean, Robin Ashmore, Ginevra Ott, and Greg Fields. Four folks we have in our body that are trained and gifted counselors. You don't have to sit in the mess. You really don't. There's hope and there's help. And I want to encourage you in that. Man, seek it out and see what God will do with it. Y'all stand and let's continue in song.